Ready? Born ready. <coughs> ready? Born ready. Welcome to another episode of your favorite political podcast, Where the Party At. I'm your host, Saba Long. Another week. This is the first episode since the epic elections of the general election. And of course, in Georgia, we believe in overtime. So we've got a runoff on December 6th. But before we get into the election stuff, I want to just highlight something that's local, that's time sensitive, that you should be paying attention to. So make sure your aunt, your neighbor, your grandma listens to this part of the episode. All right, so if you know someone or if you are a homeowner who has lived along the Atlanta Belt Lines west side and southwest, southwest legs for at least five years, you could be eligible for a grant program to help pay your property tax bill. So the property taxes are due November 15th. That's today when the show comes out. But you can still qualify for this program. It's called the Legacy Resident Retention Program. And it's going to pay the increase in property taxes, not just for this year, but all the way through 2030. So the applications are approved by December 31st, so by the end of this year. And so that way you get your application in, your, your property tax assessments are due tomorrow, today, November 15th. But if you qualify, apply and immediately qualify, you will get a tax break until the year 2030, which is huge. We know, uh, you know, sometimes on the pod we talk about affordable housing, and we know that these areas on the west side and the southwest side have seen significant property tax increases uh, because the value of the homes have gone up. And again, the whole point of this is to really help legacy homeowners, right? So the program says for folks who've been there for at least five years, but they're really going to be targeting, uh, I think priority is probably going to be given to folks who've lived there longer. Uh, so check the show notes for the link to apply. Please, you know, please do it. If you know someone who would qualify, send it to them. This is just money on the table that the city of Atlanta is helping uh, folks get. So make sure you take advantage of it. All right. So election results. All right. You already know the basics, right? We know who won. We know who lost, at least in Georgia. So why don't we start with Georgia election results, and then we can expand out to what happened nationally. So the first thing I want to talk about is turnout. The Secretary of State's office throughout the early voting consistently pushed a narrative that early voting turnout was breaking records, right? Record turnout from Fox News to local media. Everyone said we were seeing record early voting. But part of the problem is that folks were comparing in-person early voting numbers from this year 
to the 2020 election. What was the difference? COVID, right? So folks were voting by mail during the 2020 election and not voting in person. So what's the final number? We saw 50.3% turnout as a percentage of total registered voters in the state of Georgia, 50.3. Now, there are other estimates which go by recent voters or estimates of the voting eligible population. So if you use those numbers, you'll see a higher percentage of turnout. But again, the one that you really should be paying, into, paying attention to is total registered voters. Now, how does that compare to other years? Was it really record? No, we saw 57% turnout in the 2018 midterms and 65% turnout in the 2020 presidential election. So why did fewer people vote? There's a number of things. It could be voter fatigue. It could be, I don't like any of the options being presented to me. It could be, I don't feel like anything's going to change anyway. Um, it could be all of the above. We don't know for sure. Uh, but one thing that's being said quietly, but I would say it's not yet in the mainstream, is that the Secretary of State's office, office pushed this high early voting turnout narrative, I think, because it was Republicans' way of saying, hey, Senate Bill 202 did not impact people's ability to show up to the polls. So it was a smart tactic on their part. Um, let's also talk about youth turnout. I've asked someone to crunch some numbers for me, but I haven't gotten the data back. So one site showed that 8.8% of total turnout for voters uh, was in the 18 to 29 demo. But, and let me add this, in comparison, voters 65 and up were almost 35% of total voters at the polls. But then I saw some national data from Tuft University. They have a Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement. That's a mouthful. Uh, they estimate that 27% of youth, so that's folks ages 18 to 29, cast a ballot in 2022. And their data shows that the midterm election was the second highest youth voter turnout in nearly three decades, in nearly 30 years. So in Georgia, where we have a Senate race that's going to go into a runoff um, with less than 1% separating the candidates, youth backed overwhelmingly Senator Warnock, 63% to 36%. Folks in the 30 to 44 demo backed Warnock 56% to 41%. And then folks over 45 gave their votes overwhelmingly to Herschel Walker. So I bring that up to say, again, as I always say on the pod, the 18 to 29 demo in particular can absolutely determine who will be Georgia's senator. Absolutely determine. Um, now, again, one thing about uh, youth turnout, Tufts, data shows that the youth share of the vote in Georgia was 13%. Uh, but again, the other data that I had showed 8.8%. I'm not sure what the discrepancy is there. Uh, but regardless, if it holds at 13, I, I would say that it certainly means that Warnock has a very good shot at getting uh, at retaining his seat in the Senate 
but this election really can be determined by voters 18 to 29. Um, and then let me also add, almost 18,000 people voted in the governor's race and skipped the Senate's race. So I'm, I'm curious to see what those folks will decide to do now that it's very clear that the options are between Warnock and Herschel and Democrats have gained control of the Senate. I'll talk about that a little bit later. All right, the next big thing around the Georgia election, white Democrats who, want, who ran statewide outperformed Democrats of color with the exception of Warnock. So Attorney General candidate Jen Jordan and Lieutenant Governor candidate Charlie Bailey both got more votes than Stacey Abrams, than B. Wynn, who's a Vietnamese American, then William Bodie, who was running for labor commissioner, and the other black statewide candidates. Jen Jordan is a white Democrat from the Roswell area. She was the top vote getter, so she got more votes than Stacey Abrams, which is unheard of. Like usually the governor candidate will get the most votes or the Senate candidate, right? So Warnock got more votes than Stacey. But then the next person who should get more votes in the sequence would be Warnock, Stacey, and then the rest of the Democratic ticket. But in this case, Jen Jordan, running as a attorney general, got more votes than Stacey Abrams. Um, and then let me add some more data. I'm sure you guys saw that graphic that was going around about uh, the demographic breakdown of how folks voted by race. Uh, let me just... Uh, mention this, black women, 93% of them voted Democrat. Black men, which there was a lot of conversation about, voted 84% Democrat. Latino men and women, 55% Democrat equally. <laughs> and then here's where it all broke down, for, at least for Stacey. White women, 72% Republican. This is after the six-week uh, abortion ban. This is after the Dodds decision. White men, 76% Republican. And then other races were split. 50% voted Dem, 50% voted other or Republican. Now, remember when Stacey Abrams famously said, if black men vote for me, I'll win? Sounds like she should have said, if white women vote for me, I'll win because black people were already with her. That's clearly what the data showed. Black voters showed up for Stacey Abrams. White voters did not. So if I'm a Republican political operative, keeping aside the black-white part of this, I see those results and I'm doubling down on the Latino vote. I'm doubling down on the immigrant vote because the immigrant vote or not other races was 50%. That means those are folks who are persuadable. Nah, I just think those are people who vote their interests. But hey, you know, still got the runoffs. Yeah, indeed. Um, before I get to the runoffs, I'm gonna highlight a couple of incumbents who lost at the state and local level that is interesting. Uh, one is Democratic incumbent Mary Robichaud lost to uh, Republican Scott Hilton. This is for a state representative seat by uh, just 602 votes. So 
I'm always talking about, yes, your vote counts. Yes, it matters. Like here's a clear example of that. That is 602 people live in one high rise in Atlanta, right? Um, another one, which is an interesting Fulton County Commissioner District 3, Republican incumbent Lee Morris lost to Democrat Dana Barrett, which means that now I believe there is, well, there are two people now who are Republicans on the county commission. There were three, and now there are only two. Um, and it's interesting because Lee Morris is what most Republicans would consider a rhino. Like, he's a Republican in name only. He's not uber conservative. Um, he's, I'd say he's like center right, maybe. And then some days he's pretty center and some days he's center left. Um, so, you know, I feel, I feel a little bad, uh, you know, to have like a sensible person uh, lose their seat. But I'm sure Dana is completely happy to be <laughs> on the county commission. All right, runoffs. Obviously, we know that there's the runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, but there are other runoffs. So there's a runoff in Cobb and Kennesaw and Fulton. Uh, that's East Point, Roswell, and South Fulton. I know there's a countywide runoff in Henry County. So check your ballot. You can go to mvp.sos.ga.gov. That's the My Voter page. So you can go there and check your ballot to see what else you might be voting on other than the Senate race. Um, and then some final tidbits before we talk about some national things. So Trump-backed candidates Herschel Walker and Burt Jones, Burt Jones ran for lieutenant governor, were the lowest performing statewide Republicans on the ballot. Really interesting to see that. Um, I've talked about this before. I know I talked about this on uh, the local NPR station, WABE. Democrats wasted $15 million, $15 million trying to unseat Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman. That is a safe Republican district. National Democrats, because that's where most of the money came from for that race, please stop wasting your money and sending money to Georgia on seats that are net 15, net 20 for Republicans. It isn't, it's absolutely dumb. Instead, why don't you use that money on a local charity or use it to support truly competitive races? It's, you know, it, it's insane to me that national folks do that. I don't care how much you hate Marjorie Taylor Greene. It is a safe Republican district. If you really wanted to spend money somewhere, you could have spent it in the primary to try to get her unseated in the primary to get a more moderate Republican there. All right, I'm done with my rant on that. <laughs> um, and then uh, last thing about the Senate runoff. Now we know that Democrats have maintained control of the Senate. It's 50 uh, Democrats so far. And the question is, what will happen in Georgia, right? So why should you come out to vote for Warnock or for Walker if Democrats already control the Senate? Well, this is for a six-year seat, right? And there's a big difference between having 
51 Democrats in control versus 50 in control. And as a reminder, 50 in control means that Kamala Harris would have to break that tie. And that's what gets Democrats over the hump. All right, so I mentioned this is a six-year seat. In 2024, there are two Democrats who are going to be up for re-election that are going to have very, very tough races. Those are Senators John Tester and then the Democrat that everyone loves to hate, Joe Manchin. Right? So those are going to, again, in a, in a, in a uh, presidential election year, those are going to be two very tough seats for Democrats to keep. So if you are a Democrat and you want Democrats to maintain control beyond 2024, right? Look, you got to think long-term in elections. You want to come back out and vote for Warnock, all right? If you are a Republican and you're like, all right, Dems have control, who cares? You want to come back out and vote for Walker because uh, that margin of error that Biden will now have means that he can perhaps appoint a judge that might not be as conservative as he wanted, right? Uh, because if you have if you have fifty one guaranteed, you know, okay, maybe I can appoint this judge, you know, that like I said, that's not as conservative. But if I have fifty, that means I have to appease Joe Manchin or Kristen Cinema, and that margin gets really tight. I don't have a whole lot of wiggle room. So maybe I do have to put forth a more conservative pick for a judge instead of the person I really want who might be a little bit more liberal. And that's just the Senate? You don't need the House and the Senate? No, not for judges. At least not for Supreme Court. And do you, do you know what states uh, the senators are in, Tester and Manchin? Um, Manchin is in West Virginia, mm. I want to say. Uh, Tester is in, I want to say it's like Montana, but I could be wrong. Yes, Montana. Look hey. at that. Put <laughs> <laughs> you on a little political quiz show. <laughs> I know. I was like, shoot. I know I know this. Yeah. Um, so those are pretty conservative states. Yeah, so we'll see. Um, so that's kind of a rundown on what happened in Georgia. Now I want to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about other wins nationally, but specifically black Republicans who won. Right, so the first person I want to highlight is Wesley Hunt. I think I mentioned him in a previous episode. I'm not sure. Um, Wesley Hunt, I think, will end up becoming a, a star in the Republican Party. He is a con congressperson elect, representative elect from Texas. He's, I think, maybe 40. Uh, he's a, he was a captain in the Army, graduated from West Point, graduated from Cornell. And he was personally recruited by Kevin McCarthy, who is the House Minority Leader, who might be the House Majority Leader if indeed Republicans gain control of the House. Uh, so take a listen to a snippet of an interview Wesley Hunt did on the New York Times podcast called First Person. You are part of this historically large group of non-white GOP candidates. You've been campaigning for many of them. You have your own pack. Why, in your view, is it important to have these diverse candidates succeed in the Republican Party? I'll tell you why. We have a two-party system in this country, which means 
Two sides make the decisions in everything that happens politically in our country. And so if you're telling me that all black people should just be a part of the Democrat Party, and yet there is another half of the country that has zero perspective through the eyes of a conservative black person, that's not good for this country. What I don't like is the insinuation that all black people and all people of color should be Democrats, because then what you're saying is, is this, the other side that makes half of the decisions in our legislation there should be no people of color. So that's Wesley Hunt. Uh, his college buddy, John James, also won as a black Republican in Michigan's 10th congressional district. Um, so those are two folks. And then there's a couple of um, close ones, like nearby, near wins. Uh, one is in Connecticut, a black Republican, George Logan, almost unseated Congresswoman Hayes, Johanna Hayes, he lost by just 1,800 votes. And then uh, in Indiana, a black female candidate, Republican Jennifer Ruth Green, in Indiana's first congressional district, she lost her bid. Uh, like Hunt and James, she also served in the military. She was actually a decorated Air Force pilot, which is rare uh, to see a woman and then a black woman at that as an Air Force pilot. And she is currently active with the Indiana National Guard. Uh, she lost her race. And then another, John Gibbs, uh, ran in Michigan's third congressional district, but that one was likely never, he was never going to win because it was drawn as a pretty safe seat for Democrats. Gibbs actually worked in the Trump administration. He was appointed by Trump to serve on his 1776 commission to fight against critical race theory, which is kind of interesting as a black guy. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> <laughs> um, and then let me also, cause you guys know, I love to include data. Pew research has some interesting stats on black Republicans. I'm curious to hear from folks. If you think this uh, is accurate or if you have a different perspective, um, the nationally nearly three in 10 black Republicans are under the age of 30. Uh, black Republicans are much more likely than white Republicans to live in lower income households. Uh, 50% 50, 50 compared to 18%. Um, and then, as is the case among Black Democrats, roughly half of Black Republicans live in the South. Which you would think Herschel would have done better because he would have tapped into that. Um, no, he could not do better. <laughs> um, I do think Kelvin King could have done better. Uh, who was in that primary but lost to Herschel. And then 58% of black Republicans saying being black is an extremely or very, is extremely or very important part of how they think about themselves compared to 82%. 82% of black Democrats say that being black is an extremely or very important part of how they think about themselves. That makes a lot of sense to me. If I think about the black Republicans that I'm friends with in particular, not just folks I know, but the ones I'm friends with, that's a very accurate statement. But but then, okay, do you have true Republican friends or are they like Republican grifters? Like, Do you mean the black folks? Yeah, the black folks. 
Because you're like 50 50. Yeah, because I feel like it's always <laughs> half and half. Like I'd be true conservatives. Yeah. And normally those are the older conservatives. But people around my age who are conservatives, when you start digging through and you start asking questions, it's like, oh, you're trying to get a deal done. You're trying to get, yeah. you know, they donated yeah, some I mean, money to your organization. Right. And, you know, like they're getting a bag. Or, yeah. And there, I think that's really with young, like you're, to your point, it's, I think it's younger folks who see, oh, okay, I'm one of, 15,000 if I'm a black Democrat, but I'm one of, or excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm 13,000 of 15,000 if I'm a black Democrat, but if I'm a, a black Republican, I'm one yeah, of 15,000. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. One big thing that we've talked about on the pod, well, the brakes just got all the way pumped on it. What am I talking about? Student loan forgiveness. So if you haven't heard, U.S. District Judge Mark Pittman, who was a Trump appointee, uh, he's based out of Fort Worth, Texas. He ruled on behalf of two borrowers to stop President Biden's student loan debt relief program. This is the debt relief program that would have given borrowers up to $20,000 a break in their loans. That's if they qualified for the Pell Grant. Other ones, uh, other folks who qualified would have received $10,000 or they would have received a $10,000 deduction in their loan. They weren't, they weren't handing out cash to be clear. (laughs) Um, So why is there a stop on this? Well, the judge said the program is unconstitutional. He said that uh, Biden did not have the power to unilaterally do this. So it appears uh, the hope by the group backing this lawsuit is that this will eventually make its way to the Supreme Court. You all know the makeup of the Supreme Court now. Um, I mentioned before on the pod that attorneys general from six Republican-led states have also filed a challenge against this program. Just to give you a sense of how many people are going to be impacted, 26 million borrowers applied for the loan forgiveness. And 16 million have already been approved. So that's 16 million Americans who were expecting a ten dollars to $20,000 break on their student loans. They have just been told no, but maybe it could happen. But for right now, it's a no. I, I wonder how many of them vote uh, or how many of them voted. Um, so if you already applied, your application is on hold. And if you have not applied, well, they've shut the application down until this whole thing gets sorted out. Uh, One interesting thing in the judge's 26-page order, uh, he wrote that the Trump administration tried to forgive student loans during the pandemic. I don't remember hearing about this, but perhaps this was the case. Um, And the Trump administration concluded that they did not have the authority to do so and it would have to be done legislatively. The judge also included a quote from Nancy Pelosi, and it reads, People think that the President of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone, he can delay, but he does not have that power. That has to be accomplished through an act of Congress. So... (laughs) Another crazy thing about this, the two plaintiffs who sued to stop the program. 
One is upset that she does not qualify because her loans are commercially held, not held by the federal government. The other person sued because they would not qualify for the full $20,000 since they weren't poor enough to receive a Pell Grant. They would have only qualified for $10,000. Keith, that's not like the epitome of just being selfish and spiteful. I don't know what is. I'm telling you, man, America has like so much potential, but just the people. (laughs) Just people. (laughs) Like, what? I mean, that would be like, you as an employee of a company that received money during the whole PPP thing, being upset that you personally didn't receive any money, but your company did and you sue to stop the program because you don't, you're not getting cash in hand. So TBD, what will happen if it goes to the Supreme Court, uh, I wouldn't hold my breath of that. The Supreme Court upholds, the Supreme Court probably will, I think, uphold uh, this judge's point of view. Um interesting all right on to party starter you're already there all right this is an easy one let's get it started in This week's party starter has got to be the 80-year-old OG, none other than President Joe Biden. Yes, he does turn 80 this month in November. He may be old, but the man has had the best showing in a midterm in a minute. He did better than Obama. He did better than Trump. I think the last person who had this good of a midterm was George Bush W., And that was only because of 9-11. And the whole country was all incredibly patriotic and thinking about everyone, not just themselves, which we just talked about, right? So that's the only reason why Bush had such a successful midterm. Um, Just a reminder of what was expected. Take a listen to this Fox News interview from April 2022. Let me redo that. So just as a reminder of what was expected, uh, which was the red wave, right? Take a listen to this Fox News interview with Kevin McCarthy. And this is from April of this year. Take a listen to this. You've expressed confidence heading into midterms. Take a listen. We're going to win the majority and it's not going to be a five seat majority. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell seems a little more cautious. How could you screw this up? It's actually possible. <laughs> and we've had some experience with that in the past. Is there any chance Republicans are a little overconfident this year? No, we're not overconfident. So McCarthy and his team expected to win between 20 and 25 seats. Now, again, we're taping this on November 14th. This will come out on November 15th. We still don't yet know who will control the, co- control the House. It looks like it will be Republicans, but it certainly won't be 20 to 25 seats. It might be more like five or six seats. What's rule number one? Party. No, not party. No, it's not party. Turn out the lights. The party's over. (laughs) 
party is over. Close the gates. What? Alright, party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? And by the way, Mitch McConnell, he is one of the most shrewd political players in the game. Um, but I still, I think I got to make him my party pooper. He, I mean, he, he's absolutely shrewd, but if you look at what he said earlier in the year, he said, we have a candidate quality problem, right? He recognized it. And he was talking about Herschel Walker. He was talking about Blake Masters in Arizona. He was talking about Dr. Oz in Philadelphia. And sure enough, all, well, at least two of those have, have lost their elections in Herschel, TVD, what will happen. Um, but this speaks to what McConnell has had to deal with. And I'm naming him the party pooper only because if he had gotten his way, I'm pretty confident that Democrats would have lost control of the Senate. But because he had to contend with Trump-backed candidates, they lost, right? But do you also feel like that might have been because he's so true? Because he didn't seem like he, like he was doing the Republican thing, which is you're a Republican, I'm vote for you. But he also wasn't stomping or super yeah. enthusiastic. So it's kind of like, you know, let the let the party implode because I do. Yeah, I think there's I think that is there. And I think um, I was reading something or and it said, you know, had Democrats lost control of the Senate, Biden was planning to just negotiate with McConnell only and not with the rest of the Republican senators because they're so divided. You've got the whole Freedom Caucus, both on the House and the Senate side who are moving you know, the chambers closer and closer to the far right. Um, and it's, it's a, as much as you hear about angst in the democratic party, it might just might be worse than the Republican party. Right. I mean, if you are a Republican, who's not a Trumper now, you know, everyone is blaming the 2020 midterm results on Trump. But if you are a Trumper in the Republican party, what do you do next, right? And if you are not a Trumper in the Republican Party, what do you do next? Um, and those are two sides who are they're hard to get along, right? And it's not as bad as the far left of the Democratic Party and the more moderate Dems, right? It, that that window, that gulf, does not feel as big. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad it's happening. I, ho I hope it happens this year, and then by 2024, we can get some strong candidates on both sides and get options. You know, uh, not holding my breath on that. <laughs> All right, so to end the show, I just want to shout out to Biden. Uh, he stayed away from the states where he was not going to be of any help, and he went to where he could. Um, and now, Biden's got to help these Democrats figure out how to get their messaging right. Um, I think a lot of folks are really concerned about the bread and butter issues. Inflation is down. Gas prices are down, and that's great. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's a narrative that Republicans are winning on, that they are better at the economy and better at making sure that you've got food on the table. And at the end of the day, that matters more than anything else.
All right, y'all, that is today's show. Uh, reminder that you can request your absentee ballot right now for the runoff. The election is December 6th. And then I need to pull up the early voting number, the early voting times. This changed. It was, there was going to be Saturday voting, but now uh, it's been a bit of controversy. They're saying that they can't do Saturday voting. So the earliest, I believe that early voting will happen is the 27th. I know for sure early voting will take place on the 28th. So right after Thanksgiving, Monday, the 28th, that whole week, you should be able to vote early. All right, that's today's show. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to another episode of Where the Party At. <laughs>